G'day, welcome back to the Rewind Podcast, brought to you by the Handshake Agency. I'm Steve Bell. When we first launched Rewind, we were pretty adamant that it's a predominantly Australian affair, and that's still the case. But we did leave the door open for the odd international foray, such as the episode you're about to dive into. Billy Bragg is not just English, but he's staunchly English. But he's been coming to Australia now for roughly 35 years on a very regular basis. Not enough to actually be an Aussie, but definitely Aussie enough for the purposes of this podcast. This chat actually dates back to late February before COVID hit and was ostensibly meant to be promoting his One Step Forward, Two Steps Back tour of Australia and New Zealand, originally scheduled for April-May of 2020. Obviously, international travel became impossible amidst the pandemic, and the tour was originally pushed back to early 2021, so we planned to hold the podcast for then, but sadly things haven't improved enough for that to be possible, so the tour's now been postponed again until early 2022, and we really don't want to wait that long. So we're dropping this podcast now as we reckon it'll be of great interest to both hardcore Bragg fans and newcomers alike. Now the reason this interview worked so well for Rewind purposes is the nature of the One Step Forward, Two Steps Back shows themselves. The title's taken from one of his best-loved songs, Waiting for the Great Leap Forward, which we'll discuss in due course, and the format finds Billy setting up shop for three nights in each city that he visits, with the first night being a career-spanning set, a traditional show including material from the early 80s right through to his most recent releases. He's now up to nine solo albums by my count, studio albums that is, alongside the three Mermaid Avenue albums he did with Wilco, the Shine a Light collaboration he did with Joe Henry, plus numerous other EPs, mini-albums and standalone singles. Where it gets really interesting though is on nights two and three. On the second night, he plays cuts from his first three albums from the early 80s, and the third night finds him tackling songs from his next three albums, stretching into the mid-90s. It promises to be a tantalising deep dive into Billy's early firebrand career, these early recordings still much loved by his rabid global fan base. Now before we start, I need to share my history with Billy, which stretches pretty much right back to the beginning. He was still virtually unknown in Australia in the very early 80s, but down in Melbourne where I was raised, one of my schoolmates older brother, who put me onto a lot of stuff around that time, played me some early brag recordings and I was hooked from the get-go. His voice is an acquired taste, but his words were, and are, intoxicating. Showcasing a worldview so compelling and articulate that it hits at the head and heart in equal measure. Billy wasn't that much older than me, and he didn't dress like a rock star. In fact, he looked alarmingly normal. But when he got up there with his electric guitar and unleashed, it was like nothing else I'd ever heard, and I was immediately in love. That love affair has never really abated. I still buy everything I can get my hands on which these days is increasingly literature as well as music, and I've seen him on every single tour he's done down under, often multiple times. It even seems to me, looking back, that alongside other artists I've loved since my formative years, such as Mick Thomas, Paul Kelly, Midnight Oil, that his song shaped, if not my moral compass, then at the very least my ethical standpoint, which sort of sounds strange saying it out loud, but it's true. And while Billy is widely considered a political artist, due to the staunch left-wing leanings that have liberally littered his canon, especially in the 80s when he was rallying against the oppressive Thatcher regime, he writes about love and affairs of the heart better than nearly anyone I've ever heard. His ability to articulate the personal and make the results both universal and relatable pretty much unparalleled. 
I've been lucky enough to lock horns with Billy now many times in the last 20 years. The highlight being able to interview him on stage for his opening keynote speech at the Big Sound Conference back in 2013, still available on the bowels of YouTube. And it's an absolute privilege every time, with Billy being not only a true gentleman, but one of the greatest thinkers and empathisers I've ever had the fortune to cross paths with. I'll be popping back in at various junctures to provide a little bit more information and context where required, but without further ado, welcome to Rewind's chat with the great Billy Bragg. Hey Billy, how are you? I'm good Steve, how are you mate? I'm really good, where are you tonight? I'm at home. Excellent. On the south coast of England. Dorset, have you been well? Not too bad, we've been had like two weeks of storms and I seem to have abated this evening, which is nice. Nice one, nice one. I see you've just committed to a pretty much a full year of this uh, one step forwards, two steps back. Yeah, I'm quite enjoying those shows, so I want to make sure everyone gets a chance to see them. Yeah, you've been you've been doing it for extensively in 2019 as well. Can you tell me about the premise? Well, basically, it's it's a way of sort of touring that's both. Um, sort of environmentally sound but also keeps it interesting for me it's hard to justify the kind of touring I've, I've done before where it's just you know sort of fly and play every day you know that's that became the sort of norm of touring in places like America and Canada for me and to some extent Australia as well and I'm trying to find a way to carry on touring but in a, in a way that's doesn't put so much pressure on the environment. And by contrast, doesn't put so much pressure on the poor old artist as well because I can't fly and play every day in the day in the way that I used to. It's just not physically possible now. I'll lose my voice. I lost my voice in Chicago last year for um, for three shows. And it's just because I, you know, being in airports all the time, it's not great. So how then to sort of, you know, construct something that keeps me in one place for five or six days? So that's how I came up with uh, the concept of the one step forward, two step back show. So that I would be, you know, playing the, the set that I would play if I came to your town, the, the career spanning set, but also the two retrospective sets as well um, to sort of delve deeply into my back catalogue, take a deep dive into that stuff and, and reacquaint myself and my audience with it. It's wonderful. As a fan, it's very altruistic getting... Uh you know, the present and the past in that sort of manner? Yeah, it's fun for me as well. Um, it's interesting for me to go back and play some of those songs that I haven't thought of for a long time, to vary it as well, and to sort of try and connect it with what's going on now as well. In some, in some cases, those songs retain their relevance. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> Have you discovered any of the songs that you'd sort of put aside? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's sort of periods I went through where I wasn't playing um, you know the uh, the more ballady songs, the slower songs in the set, they they tend to have returned stuff like um, you know, uh, Valentine's Day is over, I haven't been playing that for a while and that, and sort of also looking at the the differences between the first three records and the, and the second three records and the first three records is what we loosely refer to as uh, Basham Out Brag <laughs> where my 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 classic guitar style chop and clang is to the fore, whereas in the second three records, I, that's when I started thinking I was a soul singer. <laughs> you know, sort of more love songs, more ballads, uh, more reflection, 
it's interesting the contrast of the two nights. You know, the first uh, three records, I kind of barnstormed through them, and the, the second three records, a lot more thoughtful. The tempo's different. It's much more reflective. It's a really interesting contrast of two shows. Okay, now for this next section, I seem to briefly get Billy on his back foot a bit, so I'll just give you some background. Back in the early 80s, long before the advent of the internet, Billy was still firmly in the underground, meaning that for fans on the other side of the world like myself, it was really hard to get information on not just what he was up to, but any information at all, really. Apart from community radio, you had to scour magazines looking for any skerrick of info, and for a while at the outset, nearly every photo you'd find of Billy would be of him armed with his guitar with this giant speaker contraption on his back, something he called the Porter Stack. To this young mind, the mobile PA was the coolest thing ever, allowing our hero to travel the world, spreading his wisdom and rhetoric wherever the wind may take him. Only it seems that the reality wasn't quite so romantic. You're coming out solo again. You've been here... You've been coming here for over 30 years now, um, often with bands like we've seen the Red Stars and the Blokes and even collaborations with Joe Henry and the like. But more often than not, it's been you, just yourself with a guitar. Is that personal preference or logistical or both? It's, it's a bit of both. I mean, it really depends what... Honestly, it really depends what last record I made. If that record is... Uh, a band record, then I'm going to try and reflect that in the in the tour that follows that record. But I think really for a lot of people, the the classic Billy Bragg is a solo performer, and so sort of getting back to basics with with that with these uh, with these shows is is both uh, something that I'm I'm always up for doing. You know, just sort of plug in and play. You know, whether it's coming and, and playing in 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 the Trifford in Brisbane or where I'm going to be this weekend on, on some steps in central Oxford doing a gig for um, American voters who are signing up to vote for Bernie Sanders in the democratic convention. It's the same approach, you know, here I am with my guitar, let's play some songs. And, but also I have to also say playing solo is also part of that, trying to be a little bit more environmentally conscious. I don't think I can justify bringing a, a crew with me all the way to Australia. You know, when I'm touring in the UK, there's there's four of us in the van. You know, there's me, there's the my roadie, my sound man, and my, my uh, merch guy. And sometimes another musician, you know, CJ Hillman's been playing with me the last couple of years on festivals. I can't really justify bringing five people to Australia. So when I come, I use local crew, I use local tour managers. And, and I think that you've, you've got to look at it that way because... It's it's hard to justify flying one person all the way to Australia, but I don't think you can justify flying five or six people all the way to Australia. So I, I have to think about that as well. Yeah. I remember being a youngster in the 80s and just being obsessed with images of you with the Porter Stack, like a one-man sort of cottage industry. Can you tell me briefly about that? That's actually a myth. <laughs> really? Yeah, you never saw that. Where did you see me do no, that? No, just photos. There was always photos in the magazines of you with that contraption oh, on your yeah, back. Yeah, yeah. That's. I think that's. I think it's just fake news, Steve. I don't think uh, none of that ever really existed. Really? No, I, it did exist. But I tell you <laughs> why I say that because my manager convinced me to do that to get the port stack together, and I hated it for not least because it was almost impossible to sing with it because the it was like a backpack, so the weight of it was across my diaphragm. The batteries, the amplifier, 
the speakers, it was very hard to, to it was like it was like singing in a in a corset, you know. Um, and he said to me, "No, you should do this because it's one of those things that people will always remember." And damn him, he's right. Here you talking about it 35 years later. It annoys the shit out of me that people still mention it wherever I go. So he was right and I was wrong. <laughs> it looked amazing like you were going to just be able to go anywhere. It used to intimidate people because it was very loud and you couldn't run away from it. You know, I could follow you around playing the songs. Uh, the, the other thing about it was if you ever went through a, a doorway, it fed back very loudly. Oh, my God. It was a it was a monster. It was a Frankenstein monster that I was sort of strapped into and pushed out there to to, <laughs> to cause havoc in, and it seems to have worked. <laughs> Wonderful. Now, before we dive into conversing about Billy's earliest recordings, I'll just point out that Riff Raff, who get referenced a fair bit here, was his Clash-inspired punk band from the late 70s, pretty much at the coalface of punk as it was happening, and which led Billy into busking and kicking off his solo career. And when Billy mentions the song in New England as originally being a riffraff song, that's the gorgeous single from his first album, the song which really put him on the map and remains one of his most cherished songs to this day. Well, let's talk about that. We'll talk night two, I guess. You're playing your first three records, so that's Life's a Riot with Spy vs. Spy, 83, Brewing Up with Billy Bragg, 84, and then Talking with the Taxman About Poetry, 86. That's a lot of great songs to be pumped out in a very brief period. Did... Did it extend back further than that for you? Like, were these songs brewing from the riffraff days, or some of them were? Yeah, I mean, interestingly, um, just the weekend before last, it was Wiggy's 60th birthday. Wiggy oh, wow. used to come with, to Australia with me, and Roadie was member of the Red Stars. Mm. But he was also in uh, <clears throat> my teenage uh, punk band, Riffraff. He was, you know, sort of the key figure in that. He was the lead guitar player. And it was just his 60th birthday a couple of weeks ago, and we got together, the 1977 lineup, and we did a gig at Dingwalls, which was a lot of fun because we had to sort of spend the five days out in darkest Essex, where they all live now, um, relearning these songs. And it surprised me how many of them either made it into my set or fed into that period, you know? Uh, it's a little-known fact that... I wrote uh, New England during the riffraff days, towards the end of the riffraff days. But I wrote another song, very similar song, called The Kitten, the day after, the one after the other, the two of them. So when I took them to rehearsal, the band grabbed hold of The Kitten because it had much <laughs> a better sort of band sound turnaround. So New England kind of got overlooked. So when I was thinking about um, going out and playing solo, it was among the songs I had in, in still in the woodshed, if you like. So that um, uh, Lovers Town, <clears throat> Town Revisited, that comes from the riffraff period. Richard was actually was a riffraff song. We used to play that live. Oh, wow. So, yeah, there's, there's a, there is a bit of overlap there between the end of riffraff and the start of Billy Bragg. The sort of punk ethos sort of remained, you know, the urgency and... Yeah, you know, just the sort of way you approached it. Chop and clang is what we call it. <laughs> chop and clang. But I was reading an interview where you admitted you allowed yourself a little bit more vulnerability in the songwriting, like for you know some of the more personal songs, I guess. 
Well, I think that was always there. I think that was always a key part of what I did. I mean, if you look at the first album, you've got the sort of personal politics of to have and to have not, but you've also got Man in the Iron Mask. You know, it wasn't just, there wasn't just one idea there with, with, with what I was trying to put out. I was trying to have that, um, that uh, content, if you like, of, of the political um, songs, but also... I, I felt very strongly that my politics comes from a place of empathy. So there also had to be, you know, strong feelings there and vulnerable feelings because I did feel a vulnerable person, you know. I mean, New England is kind of a vulnerable song, isn't it? You know, I'm just looking for another girl in that, you know. I wish, I wish, I wish you care, you know. So that, that I think that was always part of what attracted uh, people to me, the vulnerability as much as the politics. Did Did you get... Traction at home straight away, it seemed like it. Were, were people into the solo stuff immediately? Well, the thing was, I kind of stood out as a, as a solo performer with an electric guitar. You know, if I'd have played an acoustic guitar, they wouldn't have let me into rock gigs. They would have told me to go and play in folk clubs. I didn't really want to do that. So turning up with an electric guitar, nobody had ever really done that before. This was a bit of a surprise. In fact, in the early days, I had to use a, a, a name, Spy versus Spy, so that people would think I was probably a synthesizer band because there was a lot of that at the time. You know, there was a lot of synthesizer duos, the Pet Shop Boys, Soft Cell, these kind of acts. They were dominant at the time when I was just starting out, 82, 83. But what I was doing was in the face of that, I was kind of, you know, as... as as um, big production and synthesizers and wacky haircuts had come back into style, I was sort of harking back to the rawness of punk and the, the sort of aspect of punk that suggested anybody could do it. I was clearly not a, you know, a trained musician. I didn't really have a singing voice. I had content. Punk was all about content an attitude, and I had lots of that. I didn't have a wacky haircut, and I didn't have uh, a, uh, you know, sort of new romantic clothes. So that that sort of zigging at the time when everyone was zagging did make me stand out. So those people who were still looking for something like that, they kind of glommed onto me. That's how I started making making waves. Yeah. You mentioned the content. The, the lyrics are what connected primarily right from the start, hey? Yeah, because that's what that's what was the strongest suit that I had. Every because everything else was stripped down. The delivery was stripped down. The music was stripped down. So the lyrics were right to the fore. That was my strong card, and I wanted to play as as heavily as I could. Yeah. By the time you got to talking with the tax man, um, it's still only a couple of years later. But both the songwriting and it seems the arrangements and everything had evolved quite substantially. Like you look at songs like. You know, greetings to the new brunette or Levi Stubbs tears. There's just a depth there that had only been hinted at. Did you feel you were sort of progressing in that regard? Well, if, if you remember rightly, um, Taxman says on the front <clears throat> the difficult third album. And the thing about the third album is the third album is the very often the, the album that defines who you are for people. You know, Born to Run was a third album. London Calling was a third album. You know. It's very much, um, uh, All Mod Cons was a third album, 
You know, these were the, these were the albums that defined those artists, defined the jam, defined the clash, defined Springsteen. Because I think with the second album, you probably got enough songs knocking about from, you know, when you just started out, you can get by. I mean, I'm that's certainly true. I, half a dozen of those songs that um, appear on Brewing Up, I had in in my uh, in my uh, pocket during the recording of Life's Right. I just couldn't play them very well. I hadn't I hadn't worked them in. You know, by the time we got to Brewing Up, I've worked out how to play them. So they were they were you know they they stood on their own. But by the time you get to the third album, if your first two records have been any good, your life has probably changed completely. And you've got to, A, deal with that. My, you know, I've been to America in between my second album and my third album. Twice, three times, in fact. You know, So I'd, I had to sort of take all that on board. But also you've got, to, you've got to show people that you can take that idea and run with it and, and move it forward. And I was very fortunate in, in um, Taxman in that I had, was able to collaborate with both Johnny Marr and Kirsty McCall, who were you know, key players at the time. They showed that there was more to this than just one bloke chopping and clanging away in the background. Yeah. That's a wonderful album. Do you look back on it fondly yourself? I do. Very much so. You know, you're, you always... Um, at those moments when you were making that record, you li- I was just listening to some of the stuff um, on the box set from that, those sessions that were outtakes and B-sides and stuff like that. And was listening to those the other day and thinking, this is amazing stuff. You know, the, there's a, there's a, a really good um, instrumental version of there is power in a union, which might've been on the B-side of the 12 inch of Levi Stubbs, I think. But um, it's basically me playing an acoustic guitar and John Porter, the um, producer, playing a mandolin, and we're just playing it together live. We're just kind of jamming away, and it 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 really sort of connects with the the roots of that song because the 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 tune that I used for Power and Union, although I wrote new lyrics, the actual tune is a song from the American Civil War called Rally Round the Flag, which I'd heard on a Rykuda record. So, recording that instrumental version of uh, the song that kind of Americana version was not only my nod towards uh, the American Civil War and the roots of the song but also to Ry Kudo who's one of my guitar heroes not because of what he plays but because what he doesn't play the bits that he leaves out so I was trying to hit a couple of bases with that then I was never going to be Johnny Marr you know and I'm never going to be Ry Kudo but at least I can play a little bit of that Ry Kudo stuff when I need to there's some wonderful things on those bonus discs on the in the box sets. Like on that same the B side disc from Taxman, there's that cover of Tracks of My Tears. That's an amazing cover. Thank you very much. I was very fond of Motown covers at the time. Although my pièce de résistance was um, uh, "I'll Be There" by the uh, Jackson Five. Yeah, yeah. Well, I played that once in a sound check. A journalist of female journalist come to interview me and we were sound checking she came and sat in the auditorium and and uh watched the sound check and I, I just happened to end with singing i'll be there i really loved that song and i really got hold of it and when i went over to her she she was crying it just it just done her in and i was like oh that's a, <laughs> that's a powerful song but that's you know I, it's because i loved the song it's because i loved the material i loved 
you know, I think the tracks of my tears is the greatest three chord trick of all time. I was listening to that as well. I was listening. That was also among the songs. I think I'm out pitched it a bit high, but there you go. Oh, no. It's uh, I probably would sing it a little bit lower now, but yeah, I still I still get hold of that song sometimes. Okay, for this next section, we're discussing Jal Guitar Doors, which is an independent initiative set up by Billy back in 2007, named after a Clash B-side, which aims to provide musical instruments to prison inmates to assist their rehabilitation and prevent prison violence. It also later spawned Jail Guitar Doors USA, which Billy now runs alongside Wayne Kramer of legendary rockers MC5 and his wife Margaret. I was reading an interview with you and Mojo recently about Jail Guitar Doors. I think it was a sidebar to a Johnny Cash prison piece. And it was fascinating to read that you were saying that when you play in the prisons, the song that often connects the most is the verve, um, The Drugs Don't Work. Yeah, it does. I mean, I think, um, I don't know if this is true in, uh, actually it is true in Australian prisons because I played it in Castlemaine prison last time I was over. Wow. Went out and played in uh, in Castlemaine. Somebody got in touch from the local prison and asked if I'd like to come down and and, and play some songs. And we uh, we we went down there and I, and I think I pl- I think I played that song. And one of the reasons why I think it resonates is because um, drugs are used in prisons, certainly in the UK, to pacify inmates who are angry because they've been locked up for 23 hours a day. They call it the liquid kosh in the UK. I don't know if that, that phrase resonates with ex, ex-prison inmates in Australia, but I think that, you know, the the use of drugs in prison, whether as um, pacifiers or by inmates themselves as a way of getting through their time. Spice is a huge drug in, in, um, in British prisons. That really resonates. And what you're looking for is you're looking for a song that you can that connect with the men. Because when I go and play in, in, in prisons, um, often the inmates are much, much younger than me. And, you know, Joe Guitar Doors is named after a Clash song. Most of them never heard of Joe Strummer. They certainly haven't heard of Blue Brag. So you've got, you've got to have something that connects with them. And that song has a way of doing that. There's always one or two people know it. You know, at Castlemaine, nobody really knew I was, really. Um, they had explained to them, and I talked a little bit about, but, but playing that song, they, they listen to the lyrics. You know, when you're incarcerated, your senses are heightened. So when someone does play you a song, you pay attention to it. It's not background noise. It's almost like someone's giving you a lecture. You really pay attention to the words. So something like Drugs Don't Work or another one that always connects is Redemption Song by Bob Marley. Oh, yeah. Not least because many inmates in our prisons are people of color. And, it, you know, nobody might have heard of Joe Strummer. Nobody might have even heard of The Verve, but everyone's heard of Bob Marley. Yeah. It's incredible. That, that song, you know, you know, um, emancipate yourself from mental stru- mental slavery, number ourselves from free our minds. You know, it really resonates. Songs like that really resonate in that situation. So I, I, I do have a song of mine that I play. I play a song called I Keep Faith mm. because that, you know, that's about my faith in the ability of, people in the prison system to find uh, both some some form of redemption, but also uh, the means of re- rehabilitation. That's that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get these people out of this place and keep them out. So I, I do use that of my songs, but I don't just go and it's not like a gig I'm doing. It's more like a, you know, a little sit down conversation. Really. I'm, I'm just talking and playing songs. I was reading you've, 
distributed 500 guitars now to, to 70 prisons in the last decade and a bit. That's amazing, really. Around that, yeah, it's still going on. I was, I was talking to a prisoner today. So a prisoner wrote to me uh, from a, 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 a British prison up in Leicestershire uh, talking about how uh, the guitars had really helped him to reconnect with his daughter, who was a musician. And hitherto, he hadn't, didn't, couldn't play guitar. And the guitars that we donated and the people that were we donated them to who taught him how to play guitar. Now he was able to to connect with his daughter on that level. And I think that's an absolutely crucial um, connection to be able to make for inmates to give them something that not only uh, allows them to make that connection, but makes them proud that they've achieved something and gives them some self-confidence as well to be able to sit down and play a song to someone. You have to have, you have, to have some self-confidence to do that. And in the UK, <clears throat> uh, low self-esteem plays a big part in reoffending when people come out of prison. So anything that helps give people a sense of... Uh, of self-confidence and being able to sit in front of someone and play a song, whether it's your daughter or your mates or whoever, you know, that's, that's shows the people that you've, 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 you may have been away, but you've learned a skill and it's a social skill and it's a connecting skill. These things are important, I think. And finally, for episode one, we touch upon the Red Wedge Initiative, which was a collective of UK musicians formed in 1985 with Billy at the Vanguard alongside Paul Weller of The Jam and The Style Council and Jimmy Somerville of Bronsky Beat and The Communards, aiming to engage young people in politics with an eye to ousting Margaret Thatcher at the impending 1987 UK general election. Before we leave the mid-80s, can I just ask about, um, you spent quite a while on the Red Wedge project with some other musicians. It seems like then... really did seem change was possible with music when, you know, musicians had such a massive platform? Yeah, it's true. Um, but there are there are artists out there now who are trying to use use their music to make connections. You know, um, we just had the Brit Awards here in the UK last week, the main, uh, you know, sort of uh, um, awards for, for British music artists. And album of the year was won by uh, uh, a young black Briton named Dave. He played a beautiful uh, song live on TV and then went into a rap during the song in which he accused the prime minister of being a racist live on TV. And everybody cheered at the, bit, at the Brits. Now, that's a lot bigger audience than Red Wedge ever got. We never got the opportunity to do that. We never got the opportunity to call out the Prime Minister. You know, we were doing gigs and people reported on us, but, you know, to be able to, an artist to be able to use a platform like that to make a connection is is really, to me, it's really encouraging to see that. So, although um, music no longer has that vanguard role in youth culture, there are still artists out there who are using their, their platform to talk about the world. Taylor Swift is another example, you know. She's recently started uh, talking about issues supporting anti-Trump candidates. Um, you know, you better calm down. I don't know if you've seen the video for that. It's a very strong uh, endorsement of diversity, very positive sort of thing to be saying in a time of, uh, of such polarity in the United States of America and elsewhere around the world. So, there are artists still out there doing it. It's just not what's different 
between what we did with Red Wedge was the Red Wedge was much more ideological. But then it was very much of its time, you know, it was it was a creature of Thatcherism. Mm. It was it came in the wake of the biggest uh, class struggle in my country since the Second World War, the miners' strike. You can't just pull these movements out of a hat, you know, they they need to to come together. Um and uh in those days we came together around a, a, an idea, a, an ideology. Now you look at the the big um, political movements and their single issue movements. You know, their uh, Extinction Rebellion, Me Too, Black Lives Matter. But the thing that connects all these things is their accountability movements, and people are still using music and art to hold the powerful to account. That's what we were trying to do with Red Wedge. That's what Dave was doing at the Brits last week. Same thing, different day. So we'll leave it there. Thanks for listening to this episode of Rewind with Steve Bell. In the second and final episode, we'll be looking in depth at the next three Billy Bragg albums, the third night of the One Step Forward, Two Steps Back project, as well as Billy's ongoing affinity with Australia and a deep dive into the concept of free speech through the lens of the current political climate. I'd like to thank Dollabar for letting me use their track I Choose Danger as Rewind's theme. If you like it, it's found on their wonderful self-titled album from way back in 2004. And if you've enjoyed listening, please rate and review this podcast through your favourite platform or podcast app. You've been listening to Rewind with Steve Bell, produced by Craig Trewick and Andrew Mast, recorded and engineered by Zig Parker for Handshake Agency.